sing a hymn like that, I feel like we just need to go ahead and give the invitation. Because I don't know that I can say it much better than that. If you have a Bible this morning, I'm going to ask you to open up to Philippians chapter 1. We continue in our series, our journey through Philippians called The Joy of the Christ-Centered Life. As you're turning in your Bibles, I want to bring attention to a couple of items in the worship guide uh, that you need to know about that are coming up. One is that I've mentioned over the last couple of weeks that we are going to be starting some D groups, some discipleship groups for some men. We've extended some invitations to some gentlemen. We will be having an orientation session tonight to talk a little bit about what a D group is and what we will be expecting through this process at 7 o'clock. And if you've received one of those invitations and would like to join us, or if you haven't spoken to us already about your potential interest in being discipled, uh, you are welcome to come tonight. No commitment at this meeting necessarily. It's more just finding a little bit about what the process will be like. That'll be at 7 o'clock in room 302. We'd love to have you come if you're a guy and you'd like to be discipled. Then secondly, on your, on your uh, guide, you will see that we have in two weeks, uh, as part of, a, of an emphasis in the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, we also partner with the Save a Life Ministry here in Morgan County. And we will be having a, a, a shower, a baby shower for the Save a Life Center. And there's some information there about stuff that you can bring for that. And that evening, we will take all of those gifts that we bring for the baby shower and we will pray over them and for the moms that will be receiving those through the ministry of Save a Life. And so we want you to uh, make note of that and bring those in a couple of weeks. We mentioned to you last week that uh, we are saddened to announce the retirement of our maintenance guy, Steve Carl, and Steve has been faithful to work for us for several years, past four or five years now, and he is retiring, and so next Sunday we will be recognizing him in the morning worship service, and we're also asking uh, that you help Steve out and show of appreciation uh, by collecting gift cards to local restaurants or grocery stores or things like that. And we're presenting him a love offering of gift cards to help him out in his retirement. And so you can bring those next Sunday, and there'll be a basket out there that we will be collecting those and then giving those to Steve after we've collected them next week. So you can help us out with that this week as you go to the grocery store, pick up a gift card for Steve, and bring it with you to church next Sunday. Well, this is the second in our journey through, second sermon in our journey through the letter of Paul to the church at Philippi. And we're talking about this being the theme of the joy of the Christ-centered life because the primary themes of this letter that Paul writes to the, to the Philippians are primarily the word joy and the word gospel and the word Jesus. Those words appear more than any other in the letter and it's very clear that Paul is talking about the joy of the Christian life but not just the joy of the Christian life but the joy of a life that is centered on Jesus Christ through this letter that Paul writes, we not only get insight into the very intimate and special relationship that Paul shared with the church at Philippi, but we see through that relationship his encouragement to them to pursue joy through a life that is singularly focused on Jesus Christ. And by way of review, last week we said that joy is a, is a, is a quality in our life that is produced by the Holy Spirit. And it 
radically differs from what we would often call happiness or contentment. Joy is something that is birthed by the Holy Spirit and, and, and it differs from what we would normally say is happiness. Happiness is an emotion which is usually dependent upon the reality of our circumstances. Last week I was watching Mississippi State basketball and Mississippi State lost a game to our arch rival Ole Miss. I was not happy with that. Yesterday we played and we beat Vanderbilt by about 20 points. I was happy with that because the reality of those circumstances was different and so my happiness in that moment was based upon the reality of that circumstance. Joy, however, is something that transcends our circumstances. Likewise, contentment is often an attitude which is born out of a sense of personal satisfaction with our lot in life, but joy is something that, again, can transcend our our circumstances or our lot in life. So we can experience joy even if the circumstances are not something we are necessarily content with. Contentment is certainly something that we as believers in Christ should pursue. The scriptures tell us that. But again, joy is not the same thing as contentment and it's certainly not the same thing as happiness. Joy is a byproduct of the presence of the Spirit of God in the life of a believer. And so as we walk in daily communion with God's Spirit, He develops within us the spiritual fruit of joy. It's just the natural product of walking in the Spirit. But the Bible also tells us that not only is joy produced by the Spirit's presence in our life, but joy is something that we are commanded to pursue in life. And in this letter, Paul gives us a number of different commands to rejoice. In Philippians chapter 4, as we'll see in a few weeks, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Their rejoicing is commanded to us. It's something that we are called to pursue. And so we're going to be talking about joy a lot over the next 11 weeks. And we're going to be talking about how joy is ultimately found in a Christ-centered life, a life that is focused on Christ and the gospel. Last week we began by reading the first eight verses of chapter 1. And we saw that Paul expresses joyful gratitude for the people in the church at Philippi. And he is grateful not just because they are brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a, there's a certain gratitude that we have for being Christians. There's a certain gratitude that, that is expressed when we come to church and we see brothers and sisters in Christ. But the joy that Paul is expressing here and the gratitude that he's expressing is not just that this is a church made up of fellow Christians. He, he specifically uses two terms to refer to them. Number one, he refers to them as partners in grace. And he talks about how they are partakers of grace. And because they are fellow pilgrims on the journey towards Christ's likeness and because they have been shown the grace of God like Paul, Paul is extremely grateful for them. But not only that, he says, I'm, I'm grateful for you because of your partnership in the gospel. This wasn't just a church of, of Christians, but this was a church that understood the gospel and was radically pursuing the gospel in their personal lives. And because of that, they became an extension of Paul's ministry there in Philippi and a financial and prayer partner with him in his ministry to take the gospel throughout the world. And so when Paul says, I thank my God in verse 3 for every remembrance of you, it's not just a sentimental, yes, I'm very grateful for my fellow Christians, but he specifically says, I'm grateful for you because you, church, are partners with me in the gospel. And so today we're going to read 
the next three verses in verses 9 through 11. And we're going to talk about specifically Paul's prayer that he prays for the church. And we're going to talk about what he specifically prays for them. But before we read the text, I want to talk for a second about the, the relationship between joy and prayer. I want to talk for a second about prayer and our prayer lives. And, and when we pray, do we, like Paul here, pray with joy? When we come to that, that moment where we, we gather in our private prayer closet with the Word of God and we approach God the Father, do we do so with a sense of joy? Do we count it all joy that for a moment we get to have a, an intimate communion with the Lord of Lords? Or do we approach prayer as just one of those things as the Christian we're supposed to do and it's a box we need to check and so we pray and we bow our heads and we say, God, thank you for this day and we, we ask you this and we ask you this and we ask you this and then we check the box and we go away. When you pray, do you pray with joy? Because what Paul does when he prays here is you can sense a deep level of joy in his prayer. So when you pray, what do you pray for? Think about that for a second. When you pray... What makes up most of the content of your prayer? Now, I always hesitate to say that because when you start talking about prayer and you start talking about what the Word says about prayer, people start to think I'm criticizing their prayer life. I'm not doing that. I remember preaching a sermon several years ago about prayer and specifically about some of the things that we pray for. And I had several church members afterwards say, I can't pray right now because you messed me up. And I'm not trying to do that. It's not my goal today. What I want you to do is I want you to evaluate for a second. When you pray, what makes up most of the content of your prayer? Most of the time, in my own personal prayer life, and as I pray with other Christians, I have found that what makes up the greatest content of most Christian prayer is basically three things. Number one, we pray for the sick and the hurting, right? Especially in a Baptist church, we've been conditioned. You can pick up a prayer list when you leave here today, and on that prayer list, it, it's, a, it's a full 8.5 by 11 page, and 90% of what's on there are people who are struggling with physical ailments. There's absolutely nothing wrong with praying for those who are sick and are hurting and grieving. We are commanded to do so. But I have found that most prayer in the church is about 75 to 80% of the time praying for those who are sick. Most of the time when we say, what can we pray for today? What automatically comes out of people's mouths are people who are having surgery, people who are sick, people who have a sinus infection. That's what we, that's what we pray most of the time. Secondly, the second thing I hear prayed for most often is for protection from the bad things in life. And so when we pray, we often say, God, watch over and protect us. You ever say that when you pray? God, watch over and protect us and help us get... You know, we prayed this morning for my mom. She was driving in this morning from Columbus and, I, and our pastor's prayer partner time. I, I said, my mom's driving in today. And one of our prayer partners this morning prayed for my mom to have a safe drive. There's nothing wrong with that. But most of the time, we spend an inordinate amount of time praying for protection. And then thirdly, usually we pray for things that we want from God, right? God, if you could give me this, if you could do this, if you could do that, if, I, if you could give me this, if you could provide this... And usually the content of our prayer is, is limited 95% of the time in my life to those things. For people in, in my life who I'm interceding for, who are sick or who are recovering or who are grieving, for protection for myself, my family, my children, and for things that I want God to do in my life. 
But one of the things that I've realized is that many times my prayer life doesn't always reflect the gospel. Because many of us in here can talk a good game when it comes to the Christian life. Most of us have been in church all of our lives and we understand that there's a certain expectation when you come to church of the things that you talk about, the things that you say. There's a certain expectation that if you're a Christian, you should come to church, you should be engaged in church, you should, you should know certain things about the Bible. And so if you've been in the church for a large portion of your life, like me, you know how to say all the right things when you come to church. You know how to affirm that you believe the Bible is the Word of God, right? I mean, in a Southern Baptist church all my life, I have learned that if you say, this right here is the living, authoritative Word of God, it's usually responded by amen, right? We know how to affirm that the Bible is the Word of God. We, we even might enjoy talking about our eschatology and end times, and we like to get into what's going to happen in the end. You probably know a lot of stories in the Bible about how Jesus gave sight to the blind man named Bartimaeus or how he raised Lazarus from the dead or, or how he took a little boy's lunch and fed 20,000 people, and we know how to talk the right lingo when it comes to church, but I would submit to you this this morning, that the content of your prayer life reflects what you believe about God and the gospel more than any sermon you could reach, preach, any book you could write, or any Sunday school lesson you could teach. Most of the time, where our theology, where the rubber meets the road, is not in what we say when we show up at church and talk in Sunday school class. It's what we say when we're in our private moments praying to God. Because what we say when we talk to God reflects our real belief in what we believe and understand about who He is and what His work in our life is. With that being said, few people that I have ever found pray with as much depth and devotion as the Apostle Paul. His prayers literally explode with theological truth. If you want to do an, an interesting study, go through the New Testament and look at how many times Paul either prayed specifically for something or says, this is my prayer, and look at the things that Paul prayed for and compare that to what, what that list that I gave you a second ago about the things that we normally pray for in the church. And as we study this text in this prayer today, we will see that as Paul prayed, he gives us a very dynamic relationship between the working of God in us as believers through His grace and the outworking of that in our lives. And before we read this prayer in verses 9-11, through 11, I want us to understand that when Paul prays this prayer, this prayer is grounded in the confidence that he exhibits in verse 6. Go back to verse 6 and what we said last week when Paul says, I am confident, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul exhibits great confidence that God is working in the lives of the Christians there in Philippi, and because he is confident, he prays a very confident prayer, which I want us to read in verses 9 through 11 now. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, It is my prayer, so here's my prayer for you. When I pray, when he says, I, I thank God in all my remembrance when I pray, now he's saying, as a church, this is what I'm praying for you. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's look at that prayer for again for a second. 
And look at how radically different Paul's prayer is than probably the things that you and I pray for most of the time. When you pray, do you pray for God to increase your love for Him and your love for others? Do you pray for God to fill you with knowledge and discernment? Do you pray for God to to make your life to be pure and blameless before Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness? Most of the time we don't pray like that because we've been conditioned to pray otherwise. And as Paul prays here for the church in Philippi, by extension he is praying for all believers who are indwelt by the Son of God And he is praying specifically here about the work of future grace in their lives. He's saying, I understand that God has saved you by his grace, but I'm praying that by the power of that grace, God will continue to work in your life to develop things. And it's a reminder to us of this, that salvation is not just about a past decision that you made at one time that overcame the reality of your sins and granted you entrance into heaven. Salvation is not just about a a decision you made in the past. Salvation is about the ongoing work of God in our lives to bring about spiritual transformation. Salvation is not just a box you checked 20 years ago when you felt convicted of sins and prayed a prayer and walked an aisle. But salvation is just as much about the work of God in your life today as it is about the work of God in your life 20 years ago. And it's about what God, by His grace, is doing in your present as much as what He has done in the past. And so today's takeaway that I want us to understand and kind of frames our thoughts is simply this. As Paul prays here, by the continuing work of God's grace in our lives, God develops in His people a Christ-centered love. That's what he's praying. I pray that your love would abound more and more. God develops a Christ-centered love that knows what is right pursues what is best, and bears the fruit of the gospel. That's what Paul's praying for here. If I could summarize Paul's prayer for you and me in one sentence, it would be this, that by the continuing work of His grace in our life, that God would develop in us a Christ-centered love that knows what is right, pursues what is best, and bears in our life the fruit of the gospel. And so with that in mind, Not surprisingly, there are three hallmarks of continuing grace that Paul prays for in this passage. And the first of those is that you and I would have an abounding love. That's what he says. I pray that your love may abound more and more. This is the specific content of Paul's prayer, that we would grow in love. And specifically, that we would continue to grow in love. So as Paul prays, he says, I pray that your love would grow, your love would abound. But that brings to mind a couple of questions. What what kind of love is Paul talking about here? When he says, I pray that your love would grow, what is he talking about? Because we all know that love has many different aspects and facets to it. For instance, I, I love my Mississippi State sports teams. And I love a real good ribeye steak. And I love... A good fried catfish dinner. And I love my mom's peanut butter and chocolate cake, which she brought over for Josh's birthday today. I love all those things. But I also love my wife and my family. And my love for my wife and my family is very different than my love for peanut butter chocolate cake. So what kind of love is Paul saying when he says, I pray your love would grow? What is he talking about? And love for who? 
Who is he talking about? And how is that to be demonstrated? Well, let's talk about that here. The love that he is referring to here is a love that is used only in the New Testament. It's a word called agape. You've heard of that before probably. It's agape love. And it's a word that's only used in the Bible as a reference to the love of God himself. It's the highest form of love and it is a love that can only come from God. It is a love that is only developed in the life of a Christian because only a person who is rightly related to God, who stands as as an object of the agape love of God, only that person can have within them the agape love from God to love other people. It is absolutely impossible for someone who has not been converted, redeemed, saved, transformed by the grace of God to demonstrate agape love. Why? Because agape love is a selfless love. It is a self-giving love. It is a love that is demonstrated ultimately in Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible says in 1 John, in this the love of God was demonstrated that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Jesus gave everything of himself in love to redeem you and me. And so therefore agape is only a love that comes from him and it's only something that's developed in the life of a person who is rightly related to God by the power of the Holy Spirit. In 1 John The Apostle John says this. This is not on your screen. I just want to read this to you. And he uses the word agape to to hear in 1 John this passage. And so when I read it, I want you to hear about agape love. He says, beloved. The word there has the word agapio in it. And so it means those who have been shown agape. Beloved. Let us agape one another, for agape is from God, and whoever agapes has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not agape does not know God, because God is agape. That's the power of agape love. And it is a love that is always looking out for the interest of the party being loved instead of the best interest of the party that is loving And so Paul prays for you and me that the agape love of God would abound in us as disciples. That this love from God, this love that is is born in our lives, that love that is the first of the the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 6, that the fruit of the Spirit is agape, that that love would abound in the life of believers. But love for who? Is it love for God? Is it love for other believers? Is it love for everybody out in the world? The context here would suggest that the love that he is speaking about is primarily the love that is demonstrated among one another in the church. Because contextually he's talking about the church and he's talking about his prayer for the church and he's talking about his specific affection that he feels for the church. And so contextually it seems very clear that when he says, I pray that your love, your agape would grow, that he's speaking primarily of the love that we would exhibit to one another. That in the church we would grow and we would exhibit more of the selfless, self-giving, sacrificial love of God to one another in the church. But by extension, if we are doing that in the church, we're going to be doing that to the people outside of the church that we come into contact with. Now, it's interesting here because he doesn't just say, I pray that your love would grow. Do you see that? He doesn't just say, I pray that you would, you'd have more agape in your life than you did before. But he uses a different word here. The word is the word abound. I pray that you would have an abounding love. 
The Greek means superabounding, to exceed in measure, to have more than enough. It's to overflow with agape love in our lives. Now, I needed an illustration to help you understand what abounding means, and I thought of several different things, but the best, just pardon that I'm using a lot of food illustrations today, but the best illustration I could come up with to the word abounding here is the difference between getting French fries at Burger King and French fries at Five Guys. If you were to go across the street today to Burger King and order a a Whopper and fries, and even if you get a large fries, you'll get a little paper tray with, you know, somewhere around 15 to 20 fries in them. And they'll be good. Burger King fries are pretty good. But if you go to Five Guys, anybody ever been to Five Guys before? Anybody know the glory of Five Guys? Amen. You go to Five Guys, you order fries, you don't just get fries, you get fries. And see what they do, it's beautiful because they, they make these, these incredible fries, fresh cut from potatoes, Idaho potatoes. They even tell you where the potatoes come from, I love that. And they, they, they take this big old scoop and they put it in this big old cup, and then the guy has this little metal tray and he takes another scoop and he throws it inside of the bag. You know what I'm talking about? And, and you can't eat them all. I mean, some of you can because you're, you're just a glutton, but... Like one person can't really eat all that many fries. There's no way. But when they give you fries at Five Guys, they don't just give you fries. They give you abounding fries. And they're all good. And that's what Paul is talking about here when he's talking about abounding in love. He's not just having some love. He's talking about love that overflows, love that fills the bag, love that you can't exhaust. That's what he's talking about. And so he's praying that the grace of God would work in our hearts in such a way that the agape love of God would grow and grow and grow to the point that we are overflowing in the church with our demonstration of agape to people around us. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 13, 35 when he gave us the litmus test for disciples? He said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. Do you remember what it was? Did he say that you will know you are my disciples by your rabid devotion by which you show up to church every Sunday? When people look at your attendance records in the church and they see that every Sunday you are sitting in that same seat and your favorite hymn is, We Shall Not Be Moved. When you show up every single Sunday and you say, Preacher, I've been coming to church every Sunday. I had missed a Sunday in 40 years. Is that how people know you're a disciple of Jesus? Is it how they look at us and see the moral excellence of our lives and how we have all of our act together when we're out in public that we, we, just, we just carry ourselves as people that don't struggle and don't have problems and don't have doubts? And Is that how they know that we're disciples? Well, absolutely not. Do they know that we're disciples by all the impressive knowledge we have in our head about the Bible and all the stories we can tell about Jesus? How do people know that we are disciples, he says. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have agape for one another. The demonstration of the gospel is the love of God among the people of God. And I'll just say it this way. It's not in my notes, but I'll just say this. When the church learns what it means to be abounding in love, in the agape love of God, we don't have to worry about God filling the church. When we understand that 
We are called to demonstrate the agape love for God among one another in the church. People will kick the doors down to come because that's what people are looking for. And it will come across in the way that we talk about our church. It will come across in the way we serve others. We won't just say, hey, would you come to church with me? You'd say, hey, you need to come because my church is the most loving group of people I've ever found in my life. And when I had a need, this is where they stepped in and served me. And this is what we've been praying about. And it just comes out in the way that you talk about the church. And the reason why many people don't come to church anymore is because they showed up at church and they didn't get agape. They got a list of religious rules and expectations for people inside, but they didn't get agape. The reason why I started going to church as a 16-year-old boy is because I was looking for agape, and I didn't know it. But I started going to the church, and I found a group of people that loved me. And they loved me into a relationship with God. And so Paul says that, first of all, he prays that we would have an abounding love, but secondly, he prays that we would have a discerning heart. Not only that would we have a, an abounding love or a love that grows more and more, but he says specifically that it would grow with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. When Paul prays for the Philippian church to increase in the quality of love, it is a reminder to us that Christian love is not a static thing. It's not just something that we have. It's an organic thing that is designed to grow and be ever-increasing in our lives. But Paul also attaches a couple of important qualities to that love. He doesn't just say, I pray that your agape would abound more and more. But he says specifically, I pray that as it grows, it would grow in two areas. It would grow in the area of knowledge and it would grow in the area of discernment. Now this is important for us because it reminds us that love, the way that God shows us, is not just an emotional feeling between people. Love is not just an emotion that we feel. It is a tangible reality in the Christian life that is grounded in the truth of the gospel. So it is impossible for you to have an abounding love apart from a deeper understanding of Christ and the gospel. The way that we understand the, the love of God is we continue to come back as the people of God and dive into the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the more we look and we see there the power of the cross, the Son of God slain for us, the more we dive into that, the more the agape love of God begins to be demonstrated in our life. So Paul not only prays for them to abound in love, but he also prays that they would abound in knowledge. Knowledge of what? What does Paul want us to know more of? Well, the context of this prayer suggests that it is a gratitude for their partnership in the gospel. So Paul wants them to grow in their knowledge of the gospel. You're partners in the gospel, but I pray that as the love of God is demonstrated, you would know the gospel more. Paul will talk about this in a few weeks. He gets into this in more in Philippians chapter 3 when he says... Oh, that I may know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. What Paul wants us to know is more of Jesus. And we know more of Jesus by knowing more of the gospel. The Greek word for knowledge here is important because there's, there's two words in the Greek for knowledge. The first word is the word ido. It's basically knowledge of intellectual facts. But Paul uses the word epigonosco here. It's a different word. It's a word that talks about knowledge that is grounded in personal experience. 
It means to come to a realization of something or someone because you've experienced them. Again, it's the difference between my knowing about the Mississippi State players on the football team and my knowing my wife and my children. I have a personal, intimate, epigonosco knowledge with them where my knowledge of Mississippi State football is an Ido knowledge. It's just a knowledge of intellectual facts. And so Paul tells us this, that real agape love leads us to know more about God from personal experience with Him through the Word and the indwelling of the Spirit of God within us. That we would know Him, and we would know Him from deeper personal experience. And the point here is that apart from knowing God, we cannot adequately love others in the way that God wants us to, in a way that glorifies Him and blesses them. But Paul also uses a second term here. He says not only should you grow in knowledge, but you should also grow in discernment. It's a word that can also be translated as judgment or sensibility. That as your love grows, you would also grow in knowledge or judgment. It means the ability to choose what is the best path from a list of potential choices. And unfortunately, discernment is a quality that is grossly lacking in our society today. And from my experience, it's a a quality that is quickly evaporating in the church. We live in a time when people want to choose what feels right or what is right for me rather than what is best from God's point of view. And discernment is simply the ability to say, I am free to do all of this, but what is the best thing that God would have me to do? And that is what I will do. That's what discernment is. And Paul's prayer is that as he who began a good work in us brings it to completion, that he would do so by growing and abounding in the love of God. And as we do, we will grow in our knowledge of who God is and what he says so that we will know what is right But then knowing is only half the battle. Not only would we know what is right according to his word, but we would also grow to choose what is best. That's discernment. And Paul says, I pray you would do this so that as you look at your life, you would see and approve those things in life that are excellent. That you would look at your life and you would say, this is God's best. That's what I'm going to pursue. But thirdly, Paul says not only does he pray that we would have an abounding love and not only does he pray that we would have a discerning heart, but he prays that we would have a fruitful walk. He says, I pray you would grow in agape love with knowledge and discernment so that you could approve what is best and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul says that as we grow in our love and in our knowledge of the gospel and in our discernment to choose what is best, that the net result of that is is that as we stand before God, we would stand before Him pure and blameless on the day of Christ. Now that phrase on the day of Christ is a reference to the return of Jesus Christ and it reminds us that Paul has a future goal here in mind. And what he's talking about is that as believers, we live in the present tense with the future tense in view, with eternity in view. We live our lives today in hopes that we will be pure and righteous before Jesus Christ when he comes back. It's a reminder to us that we are not just temporal beings living out our lives in the here and now, but we are eternal beings created for an eternal life. And that our life here on this world is only preparation for our life in eternity. 
And that ultimately what we get in eternity is what we choose in life here. And so if you choose to live your life apart from an understanding of God, apart from a a, a respect for what He says, apart from a relationship with Him, if you choose to live your life on your own terms here, you get the result of that in eternity. But if you choose to live your life submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you choose to to place your heart and life by faith in, in Him, that what you get for all eternity is Jesus Christ and His righteousness. And we live our lives here with eternity in view. It's a reminder that every moment we live says something about the hope of our future and where that future hope lies. And when we live in the moment pursuing the joys of the present, we signal that our hope is in what we have here, not in what awaits us in eternity. When the primary things that occupy our minds are what's going on with the government and what's going on with with our football team and what's going on with my retirement account and where I'm going on vacation, when we spend all of our lives in the here and now and the primary thing we talk about is just what's going on here, it signals where our true hope really lies. And believers understand that where our hope is is not what's here but what awaits us on the other side. And that it just doesn't make good sense to sacrifice long-term eternal blessings for short-term temporal gains. So as we get ready to close, notice the progression of this prayer. Paul prays that the love of God, which has already been established in their hearts, would grow to a point of superabounding, overflowing in knowledge and discernment. As a result of that knowledge and that discernment and that love of the gospel, they would not only know what is right, but choose what is best in their life. And the result is that they would live lives that are marked by purity and integrity, and specifically, as he says here, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. You see, the more you understand and trust in the gospel, the more you will bear fruit for Christ. And if you are not trusting in the gospel and you are not abiding in Christ, as Jesus said in John 15, you will not give much evidence of spiritual growth. Paul's prayer is that the work of continuing grace in our lives would work to develop a Christ-centered love. And that love would have the ability to know those things that God requires of us in life, to know what is right, to choose to pursue what is best, and as a result that it would bear fruit for others which gives God glory. Ultimately, he says that the glory goes to God and not to you and me. I thought about this when he says there that that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness to the glory and praise of God. If you ever drive by an an orange orchard or a, or a pear orchard or you an apple orchard you you drive by a place where you see a bunch of abundant trees where do you give glory you don't give glory to the trees you don't say oh wow look at those trees those are glorious trees you give glory to the one who took care of those trees and brought them to fruition and likewise when the church is filled with the fruit of righteousness it doesn't just go oh look at what a great church Central Park Baptist Church is it's oh look at what the great Savior who is the Lord of Central Park Baptist Church that ultimately we bear fruit for the glory of God and not for us because only a God of great glory and power can take rebellious and broken sinners and turn them into abundant fruitful Christians that's the power of the gospel 
And so in closing, Paul is calling us here into a deeper joy in our lives that is grounded in living our lives centered on Jesus Christ and the gospel. But before you can bear fruit for Christ, you must be connected to Christ. Before you can ever be a a fruit-filled Christian who's growing in knowledge and discernment, you have to be connected to the vine. You have to come to a point in your life where by faith you've chosen to believe in what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. To believe that the life that he lived was sufficient to earn the righteousness of God. And that the death that he died was sufficient to pay the price of your sin. And the Bible says that there are two things that are required. That by faith you trust in Christ and you repent of your sins. You turn away from a life that's lived on your terms and instead you turn into a life that's lived on God's terms. And that if you will trust in Jesus Christ by faith and repent of your sins, the Bible says you shall be saved. And so the question here for you today is, have you ever done that? Have you ever trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you ever come to a point in your life where you've surrendered your heart and life to Him by faith? If not, we want to give you an opportunity to do that today. And you can do that a couple of different ways. You can, in just a moment, we're going to sing a song and... We're going to give you an opportunity to respond to the gospel if the Holy Spirit's speaking to you today and you say, you know what, I need to go down, I need to get saved, I need to get right with the Lord. We'll give you an opportunity to do that. Perhaps you're not ready to walk an aisle today. That's perfectly fine. Perhaps you just need to have a private conversation. You can come up to me, you can come up to David, you can come up to Ken, our, our staff members. You can say, hey, I need to know more about what Jesus has done for me because I'm not real sure I'm a Christian and I want to be. And we'll be glad to take you in private and talk to you about that. But whatever it is, the Bible tells us that today is the day of salvation. Don't take that decision and put it off till tomorrow because you may not have the same opportunity tomorrow. In just a moment as we sing our song of invitation, we want to give you the opportunity to respond to the Lord Jesus in whatever way He's leading you. Maybe you need to come for prayer. Maybe you need to come because you need to surrender an area of your life to Him. Whatever it is that He's called you to do, you do that in just a moment as we pray. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the transforming power of it in our lives. And we pray like the Apostle Paul here, that as as the people of God, that you would develop in us an agape love that would be abundant, that it would grow in knowledge and discernment so that we would know what is right, pursue what is best, and ultimately be filled with the fruit of righteousness in our lives. So Father, you do that for us today. God, you call us to whatever you would have us to do today as a result of the truth that we've heard. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? Respond as the Lord leads you.